Taxes are a tricky thing, aren't they? You know, nobody, nobody likes this. That's a great gotcha question for anybody. It never seems fair. And much is said in our politics about who pays what, right? It's a funny thing that, that we talk about who, who pays this and how much we pay and, and who's not paying their fair share. And yet, roughly about 20% of the people... 20% of income earners in the, in the country are the ones who pay 80% of the income taxes that are paid in our country. This is an interesting statistic. It just gives pause that, huh, maybe, maybe other people think it's not fair. Maybe if they're in that 20%, they think that's not fair as well. But if I could, if, if I could have a little fun, taxes aren't unlike the church. We say, give to Caesar that which is Caesar's and, and give to God that which is God's. And typically in a church, oftentimes... 80% of the giving is given by 20% of the people. Often, 80% of the opportunities of service, ministries that are ongoing and active, are often you find the same 20% of the people involved in 80% of that. They're hogging all the fun, aren't they? You know, Let the rest of us in a little bit, right? Well, uh, I just heard on Thursday night, I was getting these text updates from Awana. They have 203, no, 204 now, kids in Awana. So, yeah, that, that's a lot of kids, huh? 204 kids, that's the most we've ever had as far as I know. And, and yet, I, and so I asked the question, well, you know, how are you for staff? How are you for help? And so I went and did a quick check around all the, all the directors in each of the area, and they said, well, all the directors say we're, we're pretty good where we are right now. So if you missed out, if you didn't sign up and say, hey, I want to be in the midst of what God is doing there in Awana, sorry, you've missed it for now. Now, maybe there'll be an urgent plea. Maybe, they'll have, maybe when we get to 250 or 300, they'll have an opportunity for you. But next time Awana or somebody else comes calling, right, don't wait because somebody else is going to jump in because they will and you'll miss it, right? You'll be then the 80% that's not involved instead of the 20% that is. Let's change that whole ratio. I don't say that to shame anybody either. When we talk about taxes, 20%, 80%, I pay as little taxes as I'm allowed to pay. I don't look for, where are some extra things I could pay taxes on? I don't do that. Do any of you do that? Do you try to pay more? How, there's a box at the bottom. You can just add an extra amount. I'm not going to ask how many of you actually do that. Uh, just... I do try to pay as little taxes as I can. But in giving to God, we ought to turn that around a little bit, don't you think? We need to ask the question, Lord, what would you have me to do? Not because God needs anything we have, not, not because God needs anything we can do, not because God needs anything we can give, but because we desperately need to trust ourselves to him, even in terms of what we have. God doesn't need what I would give. I need in trusting him. I need to give something of what I have and would hold for myself. That's actually not at all what I want to talk to you about this morning. I want to talk to you about the other side of that question, the first half of that question. I wanted to talk about, in that story, in Matthew chapter 22, when they came and tried to trap Jesus, and Jesus answers it two ways. He answers it concerning government and concerning God. And I want to actually because of the time of year that it is, because of all the conversations that are around us. And one of the things we've been talking about is how does our faith intersect into the conversations that are going on around us, right? Well, I know what people are talking about in the next couple of weeks. It's pretty obvious. Ballots are going to drop. Ballots are going to be in the mail this week. And people are talking about the election. 
whether they're making sense or not, but they're talking about the election, right? And this is a, how does our conversation intersect there? How does our role as citizens of heaven intersect with our roles of citizens in this country and in this community? That's what I want to talk about a little bit this morning. What do we as citizens owe to our government and society as citizens of this country? All right. In, 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 in doing that, I want us to turn to Matthew chapter 22. You can find it on about page 827 if you're using one of the church Bibles. If you're using your own Bible, I haven't got a clue what page it'll be on, but hopefully you do. Matthew chapter 22. I'll begin reading at verse 15. Matthew 22. Verse 15, then the Pharisees went and they plotted how to entangle him in his words. That's not a new game, by the way. That's an old game. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. They say politics makes strange bedfellows. Yes, well, all kinds of schemes do. The Herodians were the ones who were closest to Rome. They were the ones that had embraced Roman rule over Judea and Jerusalem. They thought the Romans were the best thing that happened, and they hitched their cart to the Roman train. They were completely opposite politically, by the way, of the Pharisees, but neither one of them liked Jesus. So they joined themselves with the Herodians saying, Oh, this sounds so good. Teacher, rabbi, we know that you are true and you teach the way of God truthfully. Really? Is anybody buying that? And you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. We really want to know, Jesus. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a Daenerys. Now, this was the big issue because the coin that was used for the tax was a coin that had the image of Caesar on it. It actually had a statement pronouncing Caesar as a god, as a deity. This was an idolatrous coin to conservative Judaism. Show me the coin for the tax. They brought him a Daenerys. And Jesus said to him, whose likeness and inscription is this? Notice the image and the inscription. And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. They heard it, they marveled, they left him, and they went away. What he said made sense to, to them. Oh, that it might this morning make sense to us. Let's pray. Father, would you, uh, in our minds this morning, Lord, cut through the clutter? Father, would you give us some clarity of thought? Lord, not necessarily agreement in all things, but Lord, in a, a better understanding of the times that we are in and also how it is that we might best, best represent you. How it is, Father, that we could represent faith in Jesus in the midst of these times. Lord, would you give us insight into how we can use the conversations of this hour to point toward eternity? Lord, uh, would you give, give me grace in the things that I say? Lord, Lord, in many ways, keep me out of it. Lord, I, I want to be your vessel this morning, but Lord, I, I, I'm humbled by the task of, of not wanting to in, inject my own biases into the things that we need to do and are commanded to do by you for your glory. So Lord, give us grace and understanding this morning, Father. Speak to us. 
And Lord, out of the things that we used, would you give us an opportunity to represent faith in you and your mercy in the midst of these next couple of weeks? Help us to represent that, that calm and trusting perspective in the midst of things that seem very out of control. And we ask these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So first of all, we're not Jesus. We don't see through questions always the way that he does, but we need to be careful. Don't get caught up in gotcha questions. We can easily, at this time of year, with the passions that are all around us and in us, we can easily get caught up and get all excited in the wrong direction. And we can easily get caught in the gotcha the gotcha question here, we already talked about it. No matter which way he, he, he goes in supporting taxes or not, it would seem they've got him. If he's against taxes, Rome will get him. If he's for taxes, the people can't support it. He's taken an idolatrous stand. He hasn't said that he's for or against. He raises it up higher. What you got from Caesar, give back to Caesar. What, what you have from God. And Paul tells the Corinthians, what do we have that we did not receive? We have an obligation To Caesar, we have an obligation, a greater obligation to God himself, the one whose image we made. Don't get caught up in the gotcha questions. How do we raise that higher? Well, you have two groups here, the Herodians and the Pharisees. The Herodians, those those are the politicians of the day, the political savvy, the, uh, the arguing for the political status quo. This, these, the, the politicians, the media, they dare you to vote one way or another. And if you do, you're endorsing those particular personality faults. How could you possibly vote for that person? Just like Jesus, how could you possibly say we, could, we should give taxes to Caesar? How could you possibly vote for that person? And endorsing those character faults that you align yourself and you easily, you easily end up having to defend the indefensible. Or playing this moral equivalency game that that's bad, but that's not as bad as that. And so we kind of pick which sin we're going to ignore. And typically, so easily, so easily, people on either side of the political fence are going to, are, are, are going to forgive their candidate and they're going to want justice or judgment for the faults of the other candidate. And it's not so much about the faults Unfortunately, it's about the issues. And the issue, the problem is the issue causes us to overlook some faults and focus on others, depending on which way the wind is blowing at the time. Remember last week I talked about, I want mercy for me and justice for others. And that plays out with us politically as well. So so easily what we overlook or not causes us to defend something that to somebody else with different sensibilities sounds indefensible. And what that does from there is it destroys our credibility. And what we need our credibility for is much greater than this political hour. What we need our credibility for is a faithful witness concerning Jesus that transcends any latest political crisis. There are political strategists who insist that if I don't vote for their candidate, that means then I'm voting for the other candidate for other who is clearly worse in their opinion. So one way or another, I'm pushed because of this candor or that in this direction or that. It's a gotcha. What can I do and maintain integrity? There's the the Pharisees in the story. 
The Pharisees were the religious zealots of their day, the religious conservatives of their day, who proudly assert that none of these is worthy of their vote. I have a friend. She's going to be writing in Jesus. She's been doing it for years. Well, that's good. But Jesus isn't running. In fact, I'm quite sure from what he's told me that Jesus doesn't want that job. That would be a step down. (laughs) So you can do that, but okay. Some people would probably think in participating in the political realm as nasty as it is and making a choice one way or another, they would think that I'm doing something like Paul. Remember Paul? When Paul was in trouble, what did he do? When Paul was in trouble, he pulled out his Roman citizen card. (gasps) When Paul was in trouble, he relied on his Roman citizenship, somebody might say, instead of relying on God. Well, he didn't need to appeal to Roman citizenship. He could have just said, Lord, deliver me. And God would have, right? What if... What if God had given him Roman citizenship? We're going to talk about that a little bit more in just a few minutes. What if God had given him that Roman citizenship for just a time as this, just for that kind of hour? It's interesting. I've had some of my friends tell me, I've been, I've been watching and reading and sometimes posting on Facebook it's been quite a journey the last couple of weeks. Some of my own posts I had to take back down when the, when, the, when the replies back and forth between two other people underneath my post just got out of hand. I thought, that's not the conversation I even wanted to start. And so I, I just took my whole post back off again. Um, but in the midst of this, I've, I, I'm, I'm understanding a lot of perspectives. And I realize there's a lot of perspectives out there. And One of the things that we can and must do is the best that I know that God would have me to do. Well, the question I asked you earlier, Lord, what would you have me to do? And that answer is going to seem different for different ones of us. In fact, that answer will legitimately be different for each one of us. And for some of us, because of our own sensitivities or for the sensitivities of others around us, we will do one thing or another in the selection, which makes perfect sense and I could not say is the wrong thing to do. Some of my friends, however, tell me there's no way that you as a Christian, for instance, just just to give one for instance, there's no way that you as a Christian could vote for either one of those sinful candidates, the two main leading candidates. Okay. What I did not expect was my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to be the first ones to chase me away from my right to vote. Isn't that odd? Be careful what burden you lay upon others. We might be the first ones. We might expect sooner or later some of our rights as Christians are going to be taken away in the society, but we shouldn't be doing it to ourselves. Give your brothers and sisters the freedom to see it a little bit differently and to feel that the thing that they should do in response here in the midst of this is a little bit different than the way you see it. You know what? I don't want to be too radical this morning, but you could be wrong. (laughs) Far less likely, but I could be wrong. (laughs) Sure. 
We see things from our perspective and we don't know what we don't know, right? Some things are clear and, and things that are clear in my head are, are going to direct me in certain ways. And some things that are equally clear in your ways, your head are going to direct you in certain ways. And that's wonderful. Let's, let's be careful over how far that takes us in where we would end up pushing one another. This is not the biggest question in our hour. It's not. Somebody reminded me this morning that ever since the second presidential election, I guess everybody was pretty, pretty okay with Washington. It was kind of a shoe, and you know, he won the war and everything. But since then, every election has had this echo about if it doesn't go my way, then, then it's going to be a disaster. The republic's going to collapse. Every major election since has that same echoing around it. And I, I, I believe this one is serious. I believe this one, there are, there are huge issues at stake here. And yet... Be careful how we push, even one another, as well as others. How about, I can't vote for the top of the ticket. I just can't. With a clear conscience, I can't do it. I can't vote for either one of those, but still vote. I can't vote for either one of those because I don't know, really, genuinely, what either one of them is going to do in terms of what Supreme Court justices they would appoint. But what court justices will you appoint? You see, any voter in Washington state votes for Supreme Court justices. Those are normally the parts of the ballot that we know absolutely nothing about. And yet the vocal, or rather the local elections, are the ones that will make the most difference in how we live our lives with our neighbors in this community. I would, I would much rather see much less be less focused in the federal and more down at local levels where there's, where there's a closer community accountability. But, but the sad part about it is, is we know next to nothing about our local candidates and even statewide candidates and especially judicial candidates. And yet in today's political world, they make the most difference. What, how would we apply the same biblical measures and character and integrity that we would apply to a presidential candidate do we apply that? Do we take the time? Do we bother to apply that towards, towards candidates in those, in those local races or in those judicial races? There's all kinds of ways to find that out, so I'm not even going to point you to one, to one source or another. If I can't vote for the top of the ticket, still I ought to vote. I have the opportunity to vote, and I certainly can. Like Jesus with the coin, how do these two my citizenship in heaven and my citizenship on earth intersect. There is something that I should do in terms of a citizen in, on earth. How do the two of those, however, intersect together? I'm going to encourage you to exercise your rights for the sake of others and the gospel. Easily, I remember hearing one of my friends, we were talking about this a few weeks ago, been stewing on this for a while, and, and one of the things he commented on was how he for years voted for his own interest. Even his wife would kind of elbow him a little bit, little bit about that. And he'd vote one way and she'd vote the other. And they would have this ongoing thing. Why do you insist on voting against our interests? But voting is not about our own personal interests. It's not about who's going to best um, benefit me. What is, well, if that's not true, what, how ought we to vote? How do we make these decisions? I'm going to suggest that you vote the way you pray or the way that we ought to pray. In fact, the way that we're commanded to pray. Because in a, in, a, in a New Testament written in the Roman world, guess what? There's not a whole lot of telling us how we should vote. There's, telling, there's a lot telling us about who we should be, 
There's a lot telling us about how we also do participate in society and to pray for our society, even political rulers. So turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, and it says something about how we pray. And I think this is a great place to consider, what if I voted with these same goals in mind? Okay? 1 Timothy chapter 2. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. For all people. For kings and all who are in high positions. That would include the emperor himself. And the emperor of the day was Nero, and he was a rascal. He was awful, and he was going to get worse. And Paul says, pray for these rulers. Pray for these leaders. Pray for these authorities. Why? To what end? How do I pray for them? Do I pray for them merely that they will come to a saving faith in Jesus? That's a good place. That's a good way to pray for them. Do I pray for them that they'll sleep well? Do I pray for them that they will be saved? What do I pray for them? Do I pray for them that their days will be short and another man will take their office? We apply the psalm politically at times. Careful, people will misunderstand that and think you're calling for assassination. How do we pray for them? To what end do we pray? This passage tells us. Pray for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This, this praying for all to that end, this praying for all to that end is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Pray for the good of society in these particular ways that we might live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Pray that the things, the decisions that are made and, and, and policies that are adopted in our society and, and things imposed upon our society will be the kind of things that would support this. So if that's the way that I would pray, well, that's the way that I will vote. I will vote in ways that I'm convinced are going to lead for a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And th things that government would do that would actually support godliness in society. The dignity of each life. That includes the tolerance of a range of views. Things that I don't agree with. Others who don't agree with me. A dignified life, a, the dignity of human life at, from the beginning of life, the dignity of, of children, the dignity of parents and marriage. So there's things, there's social things that are at play in our society that are going to impact how I vote because I'm voting for the good, not merely what I want. I'm voting for what God says is good for society as a whole and is a, is a, stab, a stabilizing influence in society that provides, Paul says, pray for the peace of the Roman Empire. If I could boil it down. He prays for what was called the, the Pax Romana, the, the Roman peace. There was a stability and a, and a rule of law and order that respected individual colonies as long as they stayed peaceful. And it allowed the rapid spread of the gospel across Roman roads all over the known world. Pray for things in our society, in our culture, in our country that would continue for this place to be a place from which the gospel goes out. That's been our privilege for decades. 
a couple centuries, that that would continue. And that's not merely for our good and for our comfort, for things to be like we want them to be, but that's good for people who need to hear of Jesus Christ. Pray for all rulers, not only those who meet our standards, that we might live godly and peaceful, not imposing our views on others, but preserving freedoms of conscience for belief and practice, not only for ourselves, but for others. Like Paul, I will use my rights for the good of others. Remember that thing I talked about, about Roman citizenship? And Paul, at times, appealed to Caesar, and it sounded like, or it could have seemed like, and I'm sure there were critics in the day who didn't really care for Paul, and so found reason to find fault with him. And they said, if you really trusted God, you would not have called on Caesar. You would not have pulled out your Roman citizenship card. Well, why did Paul do that? In Acts chapter 16. Remember, Acts chapter 16, they go, for, they go to a place called Philippi. And they end up, because the, the gospel causes such a stir and changes life, well, the powers that be, the status quo got uptight at that, and they had them beaten and then thrown in jail. And in jail, in the midst of that injustice, there they are singing and worshiping. And it's only the next morning, I'm going to skip part of the story. You can read it, Acts chapter 16. But in the, in the next morning, the, the, um, the officials of the town have decided, you know, these troublemakers, we're just going to send them on their way, kick them out of town. And uh, so send the jailer to tell them that they, 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 they can be released. They can go their way. They're just to leave our town and never come back. And Paul says, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. By the way, did you know that I'm a Roman citizen? Paul, your timing seems to be a little slow. Couldn't he have thought that up the night before, before they beat them so severely? Couldn't he have saved them from this horrible beating, spending the night in jail to begin with? If he just reminded them, hey, you can't do that to me. That is not legal for you to do that to me. You would be violating the emperor's decree because I am a Roman citizen. But no, he doesn't. He takes it. He takes the beating. And then the next morning, when they're thinking a little more clearly, he tells them, oh, by the way, what you did was to a Roman citizen. And yet still he goes on his way. What's going on? He has now provided a protection of um, uh, an umbrella of protection among the others staying behind in Philippi who are going to, who don't necessarily have Roman citizenship themselves. But he allowed himself to be beaten and mistreated in ways that was not legal for them to do, so they would have great pause of doing that to somebody else. They would treat these remaining Christians with a little more respect, a little more distance maybe, a little more restraint, and would impose less upon their rights because of the horrendous mistake that could have cost them their own lives if Paul had pressed the issue. Paul's got something on them now, in a sense. He only brings up his citizenship for the sake of others. That's my point. He does it again in Acts chapter 21. In Acts chapter 21, he uses it when the, when the crowd is in an uproar, and so Paul seems to be causing a ruckus, and the, and the Romans decide, the commander decides, let's take him inside, and then we, can, then we can examine him under beating. We'll scourge him to get him to tell the truth. We'll whip him until he tells us what we want to know. That's, that's their plan. But as they're carting him up the steps, he says, wait, wait, do you know that I'm a Roman citizen? That catches their attention. You're not just your, your average rabble rouser. This guy actually is a citizen of the empire. 
And he uses it at that point in order to, please, allow me to speak to the crowd. He uses his Roman citizenship at that point to retain the right to proclaim the gospel. He's not using it for himself. He's still going to be arrested. He's still going to spend the next couple of years in jail. That's not the point. But his citizenship is used to give him the right to protect the right for freedom of speech to be able to proclaim the gospel. In Acts chapter 22, Acts chapter 25, when he appeals to Caesar, rather than being handed over back over to the local Jewish authorities, what he's doing there is he's using his right to prevent political corruption. Those are all valid ways that we could use our rights of citizenship as well. We are to be, just to withdraw, just to go into our own little fortress and to pull up the drawbridge, so to speak, and say, the world is going to hell but we're going to keep ourselves safe. To withdraw from society is to give up our opportunities to be salt and light in it. So we keep those two things in balance and intention, and we'll, we'll land in different circumstances, different place on that tension. And brothers and sisters, that's okay. Some of you have a lot more ability to go much further into that tension and into that society than I do. That's way past my comfort level. And there's other, other things that I'm able to do that are way past your comfort level. And we'll do those things according to the leading of God and in line with his word, but for the sake of others around us. We will use our citizenship. We will exercise our rights for others and for the gospel and not merely this is a matter of what I want or what's going to benefit me. One of the things that was said in the critique of the American democracy a long time ago is when when the rulers realize that they can bribe the American voter with their own money, democracy will collapse. And that's what's happening. In our country, our rulers are using our own money paid in taxes to bribe us to vote the way that they want us to do that will continue the status quo as it is. Now, People often say that two things not to talk about in polite company are religion and politics. There used to be a third in that mix, but our society today has long, has long progressed into that. But the company we are in is not always polite, is it? And yet we are compelled to talk about our faith. And people all around us are talking about politics. How do these two intersect? If our top two political candidates are personally this questionable, let's go back to that first Scenario, that first objection I raised. So who are you going to vote for? Okay, watch out. That could be a gotcha question. You land one way or another, and you could have people jumping all over you, right? Just try it on Facebook. You won't get, you won't get, you might get hurt, you won't get hit. So what, do you, what might you respond? How does faith intersect with this? Well, if our top two political candidates are this personally questionable, what does that say about our culture as a whole? I mean, it was primary voters that chose these two, right? What does this say about our society as a whole, about what's important to us and what apparently is not? Maybe the Bible's point about all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God is actually true. Maybe these candidates are actually a commentary on our, ourselves as a people. And what the Bible says about people is actually true, that we desperately need to be saved even from ourselves and our own self-serving tendencies. 
Or maybe your response could be if, if they really, okay, okay, that, well, that's interesting, but really, who are you going to vote for? Well, I'm going to make the best choice that I can, not based on what these two or four or how many are saying about each other, but about what it is, if anything, they say they are going to do in the country. And that goes right back around to what I want for the country. Well, I want, for, I want for our country the same things that the Bible tells me to pray for our country. The Bible tells me to pray for peace and stability and godliness and dignity. That a, 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 a tolerance and acceptance and the ability, the personal freedom of each, that's what the Bible tells me to pray for. So that's also the way that I'm going to vote. That's probably a side of the Bible. That bit about praying for, praying for everybody, for the peaceful coexisting together of all, that's probably something out of the Bible that they haven't heard before. But regardless of what I'm, whether I even can or not vote for these two, what am I going to do for the rest of the ballot? What am I going to do concerning things about government corruption, Supreme Court appointments, government regulations, the impositions of mandates upon society? I'm going to vote in ways that I understand to be best for the people as a whole and not merely what I want. And I wish more people did that. But what I must do is this. And this is our best response, folks. What I must do is this, is I must keep faith in the midst of the angst. There's a lot of angst. There's a lot of temperature. There's a lot of hyperbole. There's a lot of exaggeration. There's a lot of rage out there. And if we trust the true and the living God, we need not be so. We don't need to be caught up in it. We can care. We can care much. We can care intensely. And yet, my trust is in the Lord. This election reminds me of the, of the book of of Habakkuk. And this was my last political post on Facebook. I don't know if any of you saw it. But this was my last political post on Facebook that I most recently made. The book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament. This election reminds me of the book of Habakkuk. Now, if you use that line, who are you going to vote for? You know, this election reminds me of the book of Habakkuk. Well, what's the book of Habakkuk? Well, the book of Habakkuk is this little Old Testament book. It's real short. It's right there in the middle of the Old Testament. Most people hardly even know it's there. But it's a fascinating thing because things are terrible in Israel at the time. There's all kinds of corruption and violence and there's anarchy and, and violent people seem to be ruling the day and criminals get away with stuff and, the, and our rulers are corrupt. And this guy is, this prophet is praying to God and he says, God, why don't you do something? And God says, oh, I'm going to do something. In fact, I am coming to judge this corruption. I am coming to judge this violence. I'm going to bring the Babylonians, a whole other country. They're going to come in and they're going, to, they're going to take out all of these rulers. And then the prophet says, oh God, don't do that. The prophet recognizes this is a mess, but oh God, I don't want you to clean it up like that. See, we are afraid. We are afraid of God really doing with humanity what must be done and what humanity deserves. For God's will to come. Think about this. We pray for that. Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come. For that to happen, sin has got to be judged and ended. Think about that. And what that means for a society that revels in our rebellion against God. And yet we pray, oh God, don't do that. Oh God, don't let this be the ruin of our country. Right? And then the third move of Habakkuk. When God says what he's going to do, and yet 
that he is going to preserve his people. Habakkuk in chapter 3 says, Oh God, in your wrath, in your judgment, remember mercy. That's, that's the third move. Oh, God, do something. Oh, God, don't do that. We look and we say, God, I want, I want you to do something. I want you to change things. This is a mess. And then we look at our two candidates and we say, oh, God, don't do that. Huh, don't do that. No. Huh, couldn't it be? Couldn't it be? Couldn't we do the primaries over again? And, but then we say, oh, God, whatever you do, in the wrath, in the mess that comes, remember mercy. And you know, that's an important line. And you read the third chapter of Habakkuk. And Habakkuk then spells out, he remembers God's faithfulness in the past. And he remembers God's rescue, God's salvation, God's redemption of Israel out of Egypt in the past. And that God has promised to do it again. And he says in the present time, and he goes into a detailed description of how difficult things are going to be. But in the midst of that, he will trust the Lord. He says, in your wrath, God, remember mercy. And so I can trust you no matter what, because that's exactly what God has done. You see, in Habakkuk's line, in Habakkuk 3 and verse 2, in your wrath, God, remember mercy. Habakkuk has preached the gospel, because that's what, exactly what God did in the midst of his wrath. Upon humanity, he remembered mercy. And God himself, God the Son, stepped into human history and he himself took God's wrath for humanity so that he could give us his mercy. I like Habakkuk in this election. I like the way that plays. Oh, God, do something. Oh, God, don't do that. Oh, God, however this plays out, in your wrath, remember mercy. And you've already done that. God has already done that in Jesus. He's already given us a taste of what that looks like. And that's what I want from my political or my non-political friend. That's what I want for the people of this community, for them to know what it is to trust, trust a God who will bring judgment, will sometimes give us the very candidates we do deserve, and yet will still be merciful to us. Oh God, in your wrath, remember mercy as you already have in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, would you give us that Habakkuk confidence in you? Lord, that in the midst of much turmoil and concern, Lord, where many of us are very concerned for our community and our country, our neighbors and our nation, we are... we. We are concerned about how, how this has come to this point and where it goes from here. But Lord, ultimately we do pray for your kingdom come, your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we know that that does not leave room for any sin. And yet we know as well that you have already first provided for the removal of all sin by your son, Jesus. Oh, Father, in the midst of much turmoil, help us to point to him. Help us to even find ways in conversations to remember that he is the one that we ultimately trust in, and we can. We ask this, Father, give us those kind of opportunities. Make it even clear in our own minds who we trust and who is trustworthy. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.